Lessons Learned from the Beginning. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Anne Hyatt, author, tech industry pioneer, and leadership consultant. Welcome, Anne. Thanks, Tanya. Happy to be here. You worked directly with some recognizable names in tech, with Jeff Bezos, Amazon, and Eric Schmidt and Marissa Mayer at Google. So what are some of the most important leadership lessons you learned from working close to those people? How much time do we have? <laughs> the, the last 15 years was, I like to say, better than business school because I got a front row seat sitting next to these now celebrity level CEOs and watching their best practices and really how they invented the technology is now a part that's really interwoven into our daily lives. That was um, a masterclass really in leadership, in decision-making, in pivoting, taking big risks. And um, I learned to really replicate some of their decision-making practices. And that's really what I am now transferring into my CEO consulting clients all around the world. There's something specifically that I think has changed the industry and that is Amazon Prime. What, what lessons did you learn uh, about at Amazon about implementing Amazon Prime? So Prime is a really interesting story because they had just launched Super Saver Shipping before I joined the company. I joined Amazon in 2002. A few months later, they had this idea where they wanted to capture the other part of the market. So you have to remember back then people were still really nervous and confused and unsure about how to interact with the internet, let alone put their credit card online. So we were really trying to teach some consumer behavior. We wanted to get people comfortable and we also wanted them to return and become repeat customers. So with Super Saver Shipping, we got the people who had more time than money because you have to remember you, you fill in your cart and you had to have a $25 minimum order before it would ship. So that means like sometimes it would take a day or two to fill it up. I mean, please, now I fill up an Amazon car in like five seconds with $25. <laughs> but, um, but back then people were really new and they were hesitant. So they were doing these small mini purchases. But then Jeff realized that we weren't capturing the other half of the market that was really looking for an exchange of speed for their money. They, they were willing to give more money for less time for delivery. And what he described this as is he wanted to dig a moat around our customers so that they it was a bigger barrier to entry to leave and go shop somewhere else online. From the very beginning, even when I joined and we were still just a bookstore, he really had this vision for becoming the everything store that it is now, where you buy your toilet paper and your favorite book and you're like, whatever, um, all in one place. So he was trying to teach that behavior really early. And when he pitched Amazon Prime to the board of directors, they were not convinced that the math would work out. Like, how could you order a toothbrush alone online and expect it at your doorstep tomorrow and not lose money? But Jeff, this is a great illustration of his long-term um, visionary priorities because instead he was like, no, I'm digging a moat around the customer. I'm teaching them to come back to us for anything they could need at any time. And I'm teaching this behavior that will pay off in the long run. And so they gave him a six month leash to try out this model. And then we saw Amazon Prime members were spending astronomically more time online and actually our profit margins were much bigger. So his, his calculated risk paid off, but I think in a nutshell, it's a great illustration of how Jeff was never willing to exchange short-term gains at, that would have caused long-term losses. He was always investing in the future and that longevity of a relationship with his customers. That was such a big gamble, right? How supportive was his team or the people around him in making such a big decision? The leadership team was 100% in. And it's actually kind of shocking because when you look back 
a lot of the systems that made Amazon Prime possible didn't yet exist when Jeff made a big bet on it. He really put himself out there on the limb. And you have to remember, he had been Time Man of the Year in 1999. I came on board at 2002. This is now 2003. All of our investors had lost trillions of dollars in the dot-com bust in 2001. So they are, all eyes are on Jeff because he's really the last man standing for many of these investors. And so they really wanted a return. So there was high pressure. It was, would have been very, very tempting to get these short-term short results. But instead of being tempted by that, he was always playing the long game and his executives were on board. So I remember Jeff Wilkie was tasked with creating this software that um, would match an order with the nearest fulfillment center, which is what we call the warehouses. And that fulfillment center location was really important because it cost 10 times the amount to send something by air than by ground. So we really had to figure out algorithmically predicting what you might want to buy at any given moment and how to get it to you in the most efficient way possible while still surprising and delighting our clients, our customers. So that was a hard sell because he had to invent this fulfillment software that did not exist that kind of anticipated, it's very like early AI level of thinking and um, anticipate that need design for it. While Jeff also, the other side of the equation that had never been done before was negotiating shipping rates that no one had ever been able to do before. It's kind of, the idea is kind of like if you walked into Whole Foods today and started negotiating with a cashier of like, well, I think this apple should be 70 cents, not a dollar 25. They're like, I'm sorry, you, this is not how we do things here. This isn't a, you know, farmer's market in India. Like this is Whole Foods. That's basically what he walked into the, our shipping suppliers with and being like, hey, I want to negotiate that. And they said, we don't do that here. So he took a huge risk and diverted traffic for a few months to help um, our major shipping partners see how painful it would be if they lost all our business. And he held on, it was a very expensive gamble because we had this smaller shipper that was more expensive, but it paid off because they all were like, okay, let's talk. And um, that was the other part that no one had ever done before that he was just confident he could pull off. But the whole team was really united. We were working like 110 hour weeks minimum, uh, sleeping in the office 24 seven. And I've never seen a group of people having more fun working that hard. <laughs> you were exposed to some pretty high pressure situations early in your career. Give us a peek into one of those and what it taught you. Okay, well, I definitely... An example comes immediately to mind. <laughs> so I'd been working at Amazon for three or four months and I got my first big project assignment. To that point, I had just been helping out with a lot of things, learning the lingo, the people, uh, kind of getting into the proper state of terror. I think when I got hired, I hadn't properly appreciated how underprepared I was for this job. And I had since woken up to the fact that I need to do a lot of homework just to know the names they're using, what the acronyms meant. You know, really we were inventing the future. So I had to learn a whole vocabulary and the instincts. So it was in that mindset of just trying to be a sponge and absorbing as much information as possible that I got my first assignment. And I was really excited that something was finally just mine. So Jeff, um, came to me with a project and uh, he put a piece of paper on my desk that had a long series of numbers on it. And he said, I need to visit these properties in Texas next week. We've got three days to do it in. Um, and he walked away. And I thought, is this a brain teaser or something? Like, what is this? Cause it wasn't addresses or like a location name or something. It was just these weird numbers. Now I'm an Air Force brat myself. I was born on McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. And my dad was a fighter pilot the first half of my life. So I figured out that these were actually GPS coordinates. And I thought, well, that's weird, but um, okay. So I figured out where they were, plotted it out on a map. And I realized that they were too far apart to drive given the three days he had given me, but there weren't airports. We couldn't take the charter jet we had to get any closer. So I went to my manager, John, and I said, it's actually 
impossible to visit all these properties in the time he's given me. Maybe we can narrow the list or, or add some time. And John didn't even look up. He said, no is not an answer. Figure it out. I was like, okay. I'm like 22 years old at this point. I'm like, all right. Uh, and I thought, okay, okay, we can't drive in a car that's too slow. We can't move the jet. What's in between that? I thought, helicopter? <laughs> I don't know. And so um, I gave that idea to John. He was like, okay, do that. But I'm 22. I don't have a helicopter in my Rolodex. So I think, where can I find one? So I called the charter company that we rented the jet from. And I asked if they had resources on the other side in Texas. And they did. And they connected me with the local pilot. And I hired my first helicopter. And I thought, all right, this is this is pretty cool. Jeff went off on his first trip, came back like a kid on Christmas morning, so excited. I didn't know at the time and nobody knew at the time what he was doing in Texas, which was looking for the property on which he would build his space tourism company, Blue Origin. But it was the height of the race. Everyone was competing for the X prize and he didn't want Elon Musk and associates to know that he was entering this space. It was top secret. So he's, he comes back from his first trip to Texas, very excited. He'd narrowed it down to two properties and wanted to go back the next week to pick one. And I thought, no problem. I've got a helicopter guy. This will be easy. <laughs> so off he goes on trip number two. And I am one morning at my desk early. Um, no one else is in the building except for me and security. And uh, my desk phone rings and I pick it up and it's his jet pilots. And they said, we were just filing the flight plans for the return tomorrow, but we heard an emergency beacon go off. There's been a helicopter crash. And my hands immediately start shaking so bad I couldn't hold a pen. And I thought, I, I think I just killed Jeff Bezos. <laughs> and not only killed Jeff Bezos, but probably the entire company. Because at this point in 2003, Amazon is not yet profitable. We've had one single profitable quarter, not even close to a profitable year. All of the value of the company is based on this faith in Jeff and his vision. And I might have just killed that. So I do what you do. Uh, I called an emergency board meeting. They had no idea who I was because I'd only been there a few months and I'm the junior most member of the team. But I put together an emergency board meeting because I needed to find, I needed an action plan while I then figured out, was it him? Was it not him? Was he alive? Was he dead? Was he severely injured? I had to be ready for anything. So while we're assembling, getting all of our board members on a call, I start calling all local hospitals. And the first three or four, I said, hey, has anybody come in for a helicopter crash? And they said, um, what? <laughs> they just were really confused. And then about the fourth or fifth one, they asked me if I was family. And so then I knew I'd found him. What felt like an eternity later, he finally called in, spoke with the board of directors, told them not to do anything proactively, to stay silent about it, because we didn't know the secret, secret mission at the time. But then he asked to speak to me and I thought I was going to be fired. Almost killing your boss is probably a fireable offense. So I um, took the call and he said what I think to this day is the nicest thing anyone has ever said to me at work. And he said, Anne, I hear you're really good under pressure. And he probably said more after that, but I don't remember it because time stood still and I thought like, Okay, and this was a pivotal moment. While I'm never, will never be happy it happened. Um, it was, it was him in that helicopter crash, and thankfully everyone is fine, and we had no serious injuries, which is miraculous. But I'm glad it happened because two really important things happened. One is that Jeff then saw me very differently. Instead of the junior most member of his team, who honestly had no idea what she was doing, accurate, but he he now saw me as somebody that he could trust with high pressure situations. He could throw me into environments where I did not know what to do. I, would, I was really good at delegating authority. Um, 
you know, really managing up to people very, very senior for me. And I had the right instincts to ask the right questions and get the right things done. And probably most importantly is it changed the way I saw myself. I now saw myself as capable of all those things. And so from then on, we just hit the ground running through all kinds of crazy stuff our way. We did all kinds of campaigns and launches and insane things that a junior person like me, otherwise it would never had opportunities to try. And that changed the course of my life. So what lesson do you communicate to others from that experience? That sometimes your greatest failures can be turned into your greatest advantage because the lessons you learn in those moments of failure and struggle accelerate your learning. For me, I think by decades, that, that experience. But if you lean into it and really look for what did I do right? What questions should I do? How can I replicate the best parts of this? Um, I find a lot of people do a postmortem when something goes wrong. At Google, we called them postmortems, which is a very grim term. But it's really about looking back on something that didn't go the way you planned and dissecting it. What were the parts that you could save? Where do you want to pivot next time? And what's the desired result? But equally important is to do that when things go really well. A lot of us are just like, ah, that, you know, I, I got that new client or I did really well. My manager is really happy on that assessment. And we don't lean into the lessons learning of how do I replicate that in the future? What part of that was the secret sauce that I, I need to uh, convert into my best practices? So those moments of hardship teach us those instinct to ask those questions. And then you wanna apply that, that mindset, that thinking more broadly to even your successes. And how important is it that the leadership, the person you work for gives you the right feedback and the right encouraging uh, response to situations like that, you know, that, that really changed your life. So I have a question. Does, does your new book have a title yet? (laughs) It does. Uh, My new book is called bet on yourself and it's very much inspired by these experiences, these lessons of leadership, these best practices and the way in which you, anyone, you don't have to work for a celebrity CEO or work at an Amazon or a Google, anyone of any growth stage or company or industry, there's some commonalities that I've seen in their success formulas that can be applied to anyone and whatever their ambitious goals are. So my book is really about that. None, I'm, I will never be Jeff Bezos or Eric Schmidt or Marissa Meyer, but I can be me and I can make some big bets on myself. And for me, this is about engineering serendipity. If you know where you wanna go, you can spot these opportunities that otherwise it might've passed you by or passed by people next to you, but you can create opportunities where options at first appear limited when you know where you're going and what you want to create. And I think it's very much a, a mindset. Your, your question about what, what can leadership do to support this is that like give people psychological safety to make big dreams and take big bets to see failures as opportunities to learn really, really fast and accelerate your growth. And um, to give people room to experiment. Uh, Both Amazon and Google were cultures of extreme experimentation and to insert that into your organization, even if you're not a tech company and give people freedom to experiment and try new things and innovate and learn things really fast. I think that is replicable across any industry. And Hyatt? author, tech industry pioneer, and leadership consultant. And if somebody wants to get in touch with you, maybe they want to find out more about some of your speaking engagements or your advice, how can they do that? I think the best central place is to go to my website, which is annhyatt.co. And from there, I've got links to all my social media handles. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and I'd really love to connect and hear some reflections and stay tuned there because that's where all the updates about the book will be coming. Well, you yourself are inspiring. Thanks again for for sharing some of your stories with us today. 
Thanks, Tanya. It was really fun. And find more of my interviews and subscribe right here on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.